we started coming here about eight months ago, and y'all were so welcoming and so encouraging of us. I was uh, already struggling with sickness at the time, and, and there were very few days during those first uh, months or so that somebody from the church didn't call or text and check and see how we were, how we were doing. I, uh, I, I love sitting in the back and watching folks come in and watching y'all hug and love on each other as you come in. I love our, our praise band. Is it, am I? Yes. Good. I think so. Yes, there we go. I love core faith. Amen. I love doodads. Anybody remember doodads? Doodads were a, uh, a, a, a snack food made of uh, rice checks, wheat checks, pretzels, peanuts, cheese crackers. Man, I could sit and eat those things all day. Give me a box of, of, of doodads and a football game. Mm. Life is good. I love my kids. I'm very proud of both of them, and I think they're both great people. They have wonderful spouses, and they've given us wonderful grandchildren. And when I say I love my kids, I found out something very interesting when my first child was born. You know, I, I knew my parents loved me, and I loved my parents. And I always thought that when they said, I love you, that it was the same thing I meant when I said, I love you, back to them. Oh, no. Oh, no. The first time I held my daughter in my arms, wow. That was something entirely different. Love, 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 love. They're homonyms. They sound the same, but they don't really mean the same thing. And it's important that we not get those, those meanings mixed up. I, I would hate to find myself nibbling on a vision carrier or praying with doodads. And God loves you. That doesn't mean he gets a warm, fuzzy feeling when he thinks of you. It means he loves you so much he gave himself in sacrifice for you. The Bible gives us the greatest definition of love. It's the chapter that we come to regularly now as we uh, work through 1 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians 13. And I invite you to stand as we read this together. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, 
and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide, faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. So I'd like to go through this, this chapter in pretty much detail and see the things that God will give to us from these words. And the first thing I want to notice is that 1 Corinthians 13 comes between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. That may not strike you as very profound, but it really is. We take this, this verse, this chapter, out of its context and use it in, pardon me, in many other contexts, and it, and it fits beautifully, and it's wonderful. But what it's talking about is the spiritual gifts. The, the spiritual gifts in Corinth were another uh, source of division among the church. I have the gift of tongues. I have the gift of prophecy. And, and, and so the people were elevating themselves above one another. And so in response to that, so, so 1 Corinthians 12 is about the gifts. 1 Corinthians 14 is about the gifts. But right smack dab in the middle of it, Paul says, let me tell you the more excellent way. The gifts are good. Let me show you something better. And so in verse 1 he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Tongues is a precious gift that God gave to the church uh, at Pentecost. It seems to have laid dormant for a few centuries. You, you hear very little about it up through the 1800s. Um, you hear smatterings of it, but not much. In 1900, there was a revival at Topeka, uh, at the Bible College at Topeka, Kansas, um, sort of like the one that was at Ashbury this month, and, uh, and, and, and people began there speaking in tongues. It spread from there to a revival on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California in 1906, and, and then it was just one group of people that, uh, that used that gift. Finally, in, in 1959, the charismatic movement began when uh, Father Dennis Bennett at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys received that gift. It's an important gift in the life of the church. Now, last or two weeks ago, Bishop told you that you can't teach somebody to speak in tongues, and, and he repudiated the repeat-after-me method, and I think he's right. But I sure am awfully tempted with the one that says, repeat after me, should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Kia. Should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Kia. Well, sometimes, sometimes prayer is a, uh, sometimes tongues is a prayer language. It's not really a language that is given to, commu pardon me, to communicate with each other. It was at Pentecost, 
But sometimes it's just a prayer language, and perhaps that's what the tongues of angels is. Other times it is used to communicate with people. In, in our prayer language, it gives us an intimacy with God when we just can't find the words. The Holy Spirit gives us the words. We don't, often don't know what they mean, but he gives us the words. A, a friend of mine yesterday shared a story with me about a, a service in West Texas where someone stood up and gave a message in tongues. And, very biblically, uh, Bishop will talk about this next week, I trust, um, someone gave an interpretation. An atheist who had come in stood up and said, the message in tongues was in perfect French. The interpretation was spot on. And he was declaring, declaring to God the things that I need. Surely the presence of God is in this place. Another friend of mine was at a meeting in San Mateo, uh, San Mateo Presbyterian Church. And someone uh, spoke in a tongue. And he could tell that it was a, a, a dialect of Mandarin because he was a missionary and he, uh, he was fluent in Mandarin. But he had no idea what it meant. And then someone came running up from the back to the place where the person had, had spoken in tongues and started saying, I'll go. I'll go. Yes, Lord, I'll go. And then he explained that the message was in the dialect of his grandmother's village in China, and he was being called to come and take the gospel to them. But the coolest story that I know is of a, uh, a, a prayer meeting, and somebody started praying in tongues, and they started making a clicking noise with their tongue. Something like that. And, uh, and, and a critic was there and said, that's not a real tongue. That's just making noise. And someone else said, no, no, no. She was a, a missionary to Africa. And she said, the people I serve, the tribe that I serve, that's the sound people make when the king comes in the room. Tongues is pretty cool. But it's nothing without love. Verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith so that I can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, in, in the next chapter, Paul's going to explain that prophecy is more valuable than tongues, and, and, and he, will, he will say why. I had an experience soon after I was here. Uh, coming to this church, uh, back in December, I had to go to the ER. And uh, I had respiratory problems and COVID and uh, a couple of things. And, you know, it, I, was, I was right sick. And we remember that the Bible says the prayer of a righteous man or prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. So from the ER, my wife and I called Bishop. And we said, hey, do you know any godly men? And Bishop arranged a conference call with uh, Pastor Aldo and Danny Gonzalez and Louis Gonzalez. And in the course of that call, again, I'd only been here a couple of months, a few months. In the course of that call, Louis shared a vision of seeing me 
in the pulpit at Four Faiths. A prophetic vision. That gave me great encouragement. And it happened uh, on December 18th. I, I wasn't very strong, but I was even weaker than I am today. But I, I was allowed to, to preach, and the Lord, the Lord blessed it. Thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for speaking the word. He had a, another vision soon after that of him standing in front of my house. So he and Pastor Eldo came over and prayed for me, and I started feeling better for a while after that. Now listen, it would have been easy for Lewis to get proud about that. I had a prophecy, you know. <laughs> I prophesied that Pastor Rod would stand in the pulpit. Yeah, I'm Lewis the prophet. Well, to my knowledge, he didn't do that. And if he had, that would have been a tragedy. Because it would have taken a, a precious gift from God and turned it to something for mere yucky self-aggrandizement. Love is greater than prophecy. Verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, let me pause to point out that giving to the poor and other forms of service are important parts of love. We're supposed to do these things. First John 3.18 says, My children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so it's important to actually do those things, not just, oh, Aldo, I love you, but actually to care for one another, to, to, to do the things that other people need. And honestly, a hungry man might not care much when you give him a sandwich. He might not care much whether you love him or not. But without love, it profits you nothing. He may still get a full stomach, but you get nothing out of it. And though I give my body to be burned, it's talking about martyrdom, about self-sacrifice, you know that burning people at the stake was a form of torture back in those days. Some 10 years after uh, 1 Corinthians was, was written, Nero allegedly burned Christians in Rome as human lamps. Sacrifice is part of love, but it can't just be done out of duty. It can't just be an outward thing. Have you seen the video of the Mississippi baptism? There's a, there's a video uh, where a, 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 a pastor is baptizing this huge man in a creek uh, over, over in Mississippi. And uh, they're walking down into the creek, and the guy is so big, the pastor's having a hard time dunking him. But as he finally starts to get him down, a little boy on the, in the congregation shouts out, It's an alligator! And the pastor drops the, the big man and runs up on the stage, up, up on the bank, and, and the, the big man is there flailing in the water trying to get out. You know, I think our bishop would have fought the alligator. <laughs> Love often demands sacrifice. But when that sacrifice is just out of duty, it's just out of obligation, it's, it's empty. <laughs> Speaking of burning people at the stake, one of my, one of my colleagues, one of, pardon me, one of my interns, um, told a, a story that 
in, in his sermon, he used the illustration of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who were burned at the stake in 1555 in England because they stood up for their faith. And my friend said, when they got to heaven, the Lord said to them, well done, my good and faithful servants. And someone in the congregation said, if they were burned at the stake, do you think well done was really the most appropriate choice of words? <laughs> well, love is greater than the spiritual gifts, and it gives them meaning. So let's take a look at some of the characteristics of love. Verses 4 through 8a. Love suffers long. It's patient. It puts up with stuff. Uh, patience is, one of the, is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's kind. Kindness is also part of the fruit of the Spirit, caring about others. It does not envy. That is, you don't find jealousy in love. It does not parade itself. That is, it doesn't boast. It doesn't brag. It's not puffed up. It's not proud. It's not arrogant. It's not haughty. Love does not behave rudely. It doesn't dishonor other people. It does not seek its own. Man, it's so easy to be self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. It does not provoke. That is, it's not easily angered. It's not short-tempered. Love thinks no evil. Or I like the way the NIV says it. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but delights. Uh, love does not rejoice in iniquity. That is, it doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It wants the truth to be revealed. It wants things to be known. We've heard it said many times that in our society we call evil good and good evil. That's not love. Rejoicing in evil and not rejoicing in the truth is not love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, I, I want to spend a little bit more time on these verses. I want to notice a few things about them. First, notice that the characteristics of love are the opposite of symptoms of self-centeredness. Right? When I'm impatient, that means my agenda is more important than yours. Doesn't it? When I'm unkind, I don't care about the needs or feelings of other people. I want what I want. I want it now. When I'm jealous or I'm envy, I think I should have what the other person has. When I brag, when I lose my temper, when I insist on my own way, I am consumed with self-love, with selfish love. And you can go through that list on your own and just check that. How, it's the op how, how love is the opposite of selfishness. St. Augustine and uh, Martin Luther had a, a beautiful way of talking about the human predicament. They used a Latin phrase, in curvatus in se, it means turned in on itself. We're created in the image of God. We're created with the capacity to love. But love has become so twisted, so distorted, turned in on itself, like, like a, a deformed hand trying to touch the wrist. We love, but that love is so self-interested. Love is the opposite of selfishness. On the other hand, 
these verses are a beautiful description of Jesus. Jesus suffered long. At one, at one point after the transfiguration, when his disciples couldn't cast the demon out of a, a boy, Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I bear with you? Bring your son here. Jesus was patient with his disciples. How patient has he been with you? How patient has he been with me? Have you messed up? <laughs> I know you've messed up. And so did he say, that's it, I've had it? Forget you. I'm out of here. You're on your own? No. He's patient. The core of the gospel message is that Jesus suffered for us on the cross for your sins and for mine. Love is kind, and so is Jesus. He went about healing the sick and, and feeding the hungry, and he's kind to you and me. Love is not envious of anyone, and Jesus was not envious of anyone. He always wanted the best for people. He, he never bragged. I mean, did you ever see Jesus? You, did you ever hear Jesus uh, saying, hey, did you see me strutting across the Sea of Galilee? Did I ever tell you about the time that I was at a wedding and they ran out of wine? <laughs> Jesus was not short-tempered. Thank God. Thank God he keeps no record of wrongs, but sacrificed himself to forgive our wrongs. My friends, the gospel message is this. God created us for a loving relationship with himself. But we have cut ourselves off from that love by our sin, by that inward curve, and by our acting out of that inward curve. But God loves us so much, he would not let us go. So in Jesus Christ, he became a human being. And he went to the cross, and he suffered, and he died for your sins and for mine, so that he would not have to keep record of wrongs. Yeah, I know you did this, put it on me. Yeah, I know you did that, put it on me. Yeah, I, I know, put it on me. Wow. And he rose from the dead. And he conquered death and gave eternal life to everybody who puts their trust in him. And let me just pause for a moment. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon, if you've never done that, if you've never said, Jesus, don't, don't count my wrongs against me. I come to you. I turn to you. Forgive me. I open my heart to receive you. Be my Lord and help me live a life of love. Forget the rest of this sermon and do that. You don't have anything more important to do today or ever. These verses are a great description of Jesus. But now the inevitable question is, how well do these verses describe you and me? Some of you I know I've done this exercise with where you take the passage and, and you put your name everywhere it says love. Rod is patient, Rod is kind, Rod is not jealous, and so on and so forth. How does, how does that work for you? We're going to spot check another couple places there, and I'm going to ask you to do this exercise. Think first of your closest relationships. Think first of the ways that you relate to your spouse, your kids, your parents. Are you patient with them? Or do you fly off the handle pretty quickly? 
You know, if, if you're not patient with the people you love most, how in the world are you going to be patient with those stupid drivers on Mitchell Hammock or 417? <laughs> how often are we rude to the people we say we love? We get so used to one another that we forgot, forget just plain, old, ordinary, common courtesy. Are you rude to other people? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Let me tell you how to ruin a relationship. In, your, in any relationship you have, there have been good things and there have been bad things. You want to ruin the relationship, focus on the bad. Remember the past and not the good things in the past. Cling to the bad. That will kill it. One of the works of the Holy Spirit is to restore us in Christ-like love. Love is patient. Christ is patient. He makes us patient. Love is kind. Christ is kind. He makes us kind. The four basic works of the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, at least as I read it, are to bring us to faith in Christ, to empower us for ministry with things like the gifts of the Spirit, empower us to serve, to transform us and make us more like Jesus, and to build us together into a fellowship. One of those works, that third work, the Holy Spirit straightens the inward curve. He takes that twistedness and restores it. Restores us in the image of God. Restores us in Christ-likeness. He increases us in love. As we allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in us, that's what takes place. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God is working in us to make us like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It isn't an instant presto changeo. We're changed from glory to glory. A little more glorious today than yesterday, thank God. And a little more glorious tomorrow than today. But the work of the Holy Spirit is to transform us into people of love. People of Christ-like love. Next, the gifts are provisional for this life. They're things that we need in this journey from birth to death, and especially in our Christian pilgrimage. We read, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Now, some people take these verses and say, that's already happened. Once we have the New Testament, the perfect had come, and, and so before we had the New Testament, we needed gifts and prophecies and healings and all that kind of, of stuff. But now that the perfect has come, we don't need those gifts anymore. They have ceased. The Bible does say they will cease. But does it mean that it'll happen when we have the New Testament? 
I don't think that's what it means. But it does say that one day we, don't, we won't need tongues. We'll be able to express ourselves to God and to one another fluidly, perfectly. One day we won't need prophecies. Prophecy is awfully hard to, is awfully ambiguous and hard to interpret sometimes. Those things will cease. They'll fade away. They won't happen anymore when we see Christ face to face. The time is coming when he will be among us, when we will be in his presence, that at his name every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when that happens, we won't need those gifts anymore. They're provisional. They're for here and now. Use them, enjoy them, but they're not what really counts. What does? Love is permanent. The gifts are provisional. Love is permanent. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. I remember when I was about 12, 13 years old, I wanted a country gentleman's Gretsch guitar. George Harrison played a country gentleman on the Ed Sullivan show when the Beatles showed up. The monkeys all played Gretsch guitars. I wanted a Gretsch guitar. And they were only $300. Well, back then. And so I, I told my dad, I, I wanted a Gretsch country gentleman. It's only $300. He said, I can't afford that. I knew he made $5 an hour. Worked 40 hours a week. I could do the math. That's $200 a week. Two weeks, he's got 100 bucks left over after he buys me the Gretsch. <laughs> there were some things I really didn't quite understand. Likewise, there are things I understand now as a follower of Jesus that I didn't know 50 years ago. How true the Bible is. How deep his love is. How much God's way is better than any of the ways that we can try and make up for ourselves. And someday, our understanding will be perfect. Now we see in a mirror dimly. Now, you know, we think of polished glass mirrors that give a pretty accurate reflection. When Paul wrote, most mirrors were just a polished piece of brass or something like that. So kind of a distorted picture. That's how we see God. That's how we see reality. One day we'll see it as, as it really is. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Stop. You know why love is the greatest? Because even faith and hope are provisional. Right? I mean, in heaven, when I'm face-to-face -face with Jesus, I won't need faith anymore. He'll be right there. When Christ comes back, what will I hope for? It will all be fulfilled, but there will still be love. We will still bask and exude love for all eternity. Let me remind you that Christ-like love comes from Christ. It isn't something we can muster up. It isn't, I'm going to be more patient, I'm going to be more patient, I'm going to be more patient, I'm going to be kind, I'm not going to lose my temper. 
We can't do it. We can't do it. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Christ-like love comes from Christ transforming us. Romans 5, 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has God's very own love. Are you getting this? That's not just a nice, pretty hallmark phrase. The love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. We become conduits through which God's love flows. We don't try and bring it up ourselves. We just receive it from him and let it flow out through us on everyone else. Beloved, let us love one another. 1 John 4, 7 says, For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God. God's love flows through us. Now, it has an effect on us as it passes through, and it has an effect on other people as we love them. But the point is for us to allow ourselves to be those vessels of God's love. When I say, I love you, it doesn't mean I think you're a wonderful person, though I might. It doesn't mean I'm a wonderful person because I'm so loving. I know I'm not. It means, in the Christian community, I love you means God's love for you flows through me. God's love for you flows through me. You want to tell somebody I love you? Go ahead. Go ahead. You want to tell somebody I love you? Would you like to let God's love flow through you? If you would. I'm going to offer a prayer. And if you would like to receive that, just ask the people next to you if they would put their hand on your shoulder or something and pray for you as I lead us in this prayer. You'll recognize the prayer. It's from Ephesians 3. We have it on a bookmark out in the back. Let's pray. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with his might through the Spirit and the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen.